Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, I'm Alva. And I'm Anoush. And on today's podcast, we're speaking to Labour shadow leader of the House, Thangam Debonair. As Labour looked to capitalise on the corruption scandal facing the government, how does Labour avoid getting damaged by a corrosion of trust in all politicians? Today's guest is Thangam Debonair, the Labour MP for Bristol West, who, as the shadow leader of the House, faced Jacob Rees-Mogg across the dispatch box as he first tried to have the suspension of Owen Paterson overturned and was then forced to hold another debate to get that vote rescinded. She was also a Labour whip during the many tight Brexit votes during Theresa May's premiership. Here she is, speaking in Parliament during that one-hour debate forced on the government by their own backbencher, Christopher Chope. The motion before us today should have gone through last night, but was blocked by a single voice, for reasons which remain a mystery to me, but we may hear them shortly. But now here we are debating them. When he was asked at business questions how this sham committee, which is on the messed up motion, with a named chair, quite inappropriate, would operate with no funding, no cross-party support, the Leader of the House, I seem to recall, waved his hands at me, tried to imply that we hadn't been listening to his words, but we had. And answer came there, none. Then the government resisted, absurdly, the suggested motion from my honourable friend, the chair of the Standards Committee, also resisted urging from myself and no doubt others, the motion that they could have laid there and then, last Monday, to rectify the mess they'd made, not just made, but quite improperly whipped for, given that this is a House matter. Then finally last Tuesday, it appeared on remaining orders for last night on a nod-or-nothing basis. Now, I confess, Mr Speaker, even I was surprised at the chaos last night as it descended into chamber farce. I really thought that the government, having admitted their mistake and squirrelled away this remedy on a late-night no-debate motion, surely they will have made sure that no-one was going to mess it up for them again. But, Mr Speaker, oh, how wrong I was. To continue the Talking Heads references, this is not my beautiful house, and this government cannot sweep this under the rug. Thanks so much for joining us. Now, you've been behind the scenes. Uh, You've been a whip. Now you're shadow leader of the house. You know how wrangling in Parliament works. How surprising have you found it how the government has bungled the Owen Paterson affair and the aftermath? Oh, my goodness. You can see me putting my head in my hands. The most extraordinary thing here is if the government had simply accepted the Standards Committee report and we'd voted on it, Owen Paterson would be halfway through his suspension by now. He'd still be an MP. There almost certainly would have been no story over the last two weeks. 
I find it absolutely astonishing that somebody didn't say to the government, the government press office didn't say to the leader of the house or to the prime minister, this just needs to go through. The report found Mr. Patterson absolutely, unfortunately, very clearly in breach of the rules and not just once, not just a little bit, but multiple times. And I find it astonishing that someone didn't say to the government, you just need to recognise that this is actually a full and appropriate report. Now, here we are. We're three weeks on. Didn't need to be this big a story. And yet it is. So, yes, I'm frankly really surprised that there wasn't somebody behind the scenes. And I I suspect there was, but they weren't listened to. And you've been Jacob Rees-Mogg's opposite number for a while. What's that been like? Have you been surprised at how he's handled it? Or is this sort of true to how he is leader of the house and his kind of modus operandi? Jacob is an extremely courteous, communicative opposite number to have. However, on this particular issue, as a matter of policy, I'm surprised because Jacob is a great respecter of Parliament and parliamentary tradition, and he understands how Parliament works. He understands the importance of standards. And, you know, his explanation about it being out of sympathy for Mr Patterson, which I completely understand, by the way, I don't think there's a single MP or or you, you couldn't be human and not have sympathy for what Mr Patterson's been through. It must have been absolutely dreadful. Two things can be true at once. And I think that's what Jacob's had to realise over the last three weeks is you can, or is it two? I've almost lost count. That you can be sympathetic to someone and still at the same time recognise that they've done something wrong and that that needs to be put right. And there was a way of putting it right. Now, the other thing that's that I have found quite interesting is the degree to which not just Jacob, but others have effectively they did a 180 degree turn over the course of 24 hours. And the thing that that I was, I mean, slightly bemused by um, was this, it's a shame that the two issues were conflated excuse that was trotted out. You know, the two issues being um, Mr. Mr. Patterson's uh, behaviour that was was reported on by standards and sympathy for his tragic circumstances and needing to change and update the rules possibly because there was a legitimate discussion to have. Now, when the government uh, spokespeople such as Jacob and others say it's a pity that these issues were conflated, who knew except everybody? Because I stood up in that debate and said, don't conflate these issues. I might not have used the word conflate. It, it was unnecessary. They were warned. Chris Bryant, chair of the Standards Committee, said it patiently, slowly, carefully and thoughtfully in a very measured way. Any number of people, including on their own side, former chief whip, Mark Harper, any number of people said in a thoughtful, respectful manner. Let's not mix these things up. You can't introduce an appeals process in the middle of a process, which is already live. And it was also astonishing that they were trying to claim that there was no appeals process when there actually is. That is what the Standards Committee process is. Now, I recognise maybe we could do with a change in name. We could always do with it strengthening the rules, strengthening the processes. All of that can be true, but it wouldn't have changed the result. And so as an opposite number, I I think I was surprised that Jacob took the tack of throwing his hands up in the air and saying, oh, goodness me, however, did these two things get confused when it was literally him doing the confusing? 
Mm. And, and you talked about maybe we could do with strengthening, strengthening the rules. Is that something that you have opinions on specifically? Where do you draw the line at an MP's second job? I do have opinions, but again, something which beggars belief is the fact that it was a known thing. Jacob knew because he'd given evidence to them that the Standards Committee was reviewing the Code of Conduct. They're due to report next week. The right and proper thing to have done would be to say, we know that the Standards Committee is reviewing where the Code of Conduct is. We wait to see the results of that report and then we'll discuss and debate that. That would have been a process which they could have adopted and they've chosen not to and I am surprised that they did that as well in fact I'm, I'm busy being surprised here this yeah. morning. <laughs> <laughs> surprised by everything is it, it always surprises me that somebody who is so knowledgeable about parliamentary process and history and tradition as well and also about a great respect for democracy Jacob always makes great store of the fact he respects democracy is how is that appropriate to just decide that for, when it's one of your friends, you will suddenly change the rules midway through. There was a, a, a supreme act of, of I don't know, I, I can't even think of the right word at the moment. Anyway, here we are. I personally am waiting for what the Standards Committee comes up with. I just, I also have to say, as a matter of personal comment, and this is very personal, not a party political point, um, I think if you are doing your job by your constituents, doing your parliamentary work, your constituency work, your constituency advocacy, reading the overwhelming volume of material that there is to read if you want to be a well-informed MP. You could work 24 hours a day and you still wouldn't get everything ticked off your list. So granted, there are obviously those who will say you need to bring people with a rich variety. I think the use of the word rich, by the way, was a bit of a mistake on the part of the government. <laughs> yeah, let's say a varied tapestry of experiences to Parliament. Of course, I bring my experience with me to Parliament. I've got a whole history. I'm 55. I came to Parliament with, with a good three decades worth of working experience. Didn't leave it at the door, but I didn't carry on working in my past job. And, and I'm also, you know, I, so I think that argument is get, take, takes you down a dark alley, I'm afraid. But the argument about lobbying, it shouldn't need, we shouldn't have needed to tighten the rules still further because there was already a rule against lobbying. And Mr. Patterson broke it and the Standards Commissioner reported that and the Standards Committee reviewed her findings, took more evidence and confirmed it. There already was a rule against lobbying. It seems that now we can't have that without strengthening it still further because, and the reason being is we can't trust the government, not just to decide oh, we're going to ignore that rule or we're going to override that rule if it suits them. So we are going to have to strengthen that rule, in my view. But I will re I will respectfully and I think quite rightly wait for the Standards Committee to see what they've come up with because they're the ones who've taken the evidence. They're the ones who've considered it carefully. And then we'll look at it and we'll debate it. And, and I will almost certainly want to vote for whatever it is the Standards Committee comes up with. And that's an option the government had available to them as well. So, yes, here we are. It's obviously Fangham's surprised podcast, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. Actually, do you know what? I, I'm not sure why I'm surprised. Maybe I should be more cynical. I think it's because I am still a naive idealist I'm still an idealist shall we say not naive anymore I've been a whip but I'm an <laughs> idealist and I still think that we should expect we should be able to expect MPs to be proud of the Nolan principles proud to live up to them and never need to be in a position where they're having to explain well I took this amount of money for this amount of access but it was all right it never was there's been a rule against it since 1695 and those rules were broken. And yes, it seems now we're going to have to make them even stronger because we can't trust the government not just to try and rip up the rule book.
Mm. And so I have to ask you about your speech in Parliament when the government was forced into a debate on reversing their original vote on the Patterson case when you made a number of talking heads references. <laughs> what was behind those? Ah, well, because I literally sat down, I think it was very late the night before when it was obvious I was going to have to make a speech. And my first words that I wrote on the piece of paper were, how did we get here? Now, not only am I a big Talking Heads fan, it was literally the first piece of vinyl I ever bought. Uh, actually, the two albums remain in light and fear of music, and they still remain my two favourite complete works of music. It, it, apart from, I did mention Schubert as well. There's the, I'm a classical musician by trade, and most of my favourite music is actually classical music. But those two albums, I think, are two of the best albums ever made. And if you listen to the lyrics, you can see what an absolute genius David Byrne is with words as well as with music. I, I also happen to think he's a great dancer because I've seen him live. And I just think he's amazing. But the how did we get here? How did I get here? And then I realised I was playing the, the, the song in my head as I was writing a first draft of the speech. And I realised that the words, this is not my beautiful house, uh, were also really appropriate. I didn't think it was appropriate to say, this is not my beautiful wife, but this is not my beautiful house. And how did we get here? It just really felt, to, they just resonated with me throughout that because a dear friend of mine Stephen Pound who, who stood down at the last general election when I got appointed to be uh, shadow leader of the house he said how will you avoid going in every week and saying oh for goodness sake and throwing your hands up in the air which is one of the things I do oh for goodness sake it was t- that entire speech I could have shorthanded to that and and instead I thought okay let's work out how did we get here seeing as in fact Jacob seemed to have quite a lot of difficulty working out how he got here so it was a little bit slightly sarcastic allow me to explain it to you then Jacob this is how you got here but this is not my beautiful house and, and it is a beautiful house democracy is a beautiful thing I abs- I'm cheesy I really love democracy I love parliamentary democracy I think you can always make it better you can always work on it you should always scrutinize it but it's a thing worth treasuring you, it slips away at your peril and one of the ways it slips away is if you change the rules because it suits you for you and that one of your mates that's not a good democracy okay and we're also speaking off the back of a sizable rebellion on the social care vote disgruntled and at at worst concerned reception of Boris Johnson's CBI speech and there's been a bit of a change in the polls over the past few weeks as well is this a moment or is it forgive me same as it ever was (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's the trouble with that song isn't it (laughs) and I actually took that I put that line in then I took it out again but you you could it's it's difficult to tell when you're in the middle when you're in the eye of the storm it's difficult to tell how long the storm's gonna last for isn't it you know there have been plenty of moments which have not led to the downfall of government and certainly when I was in the middle of the eye of the Brexit storm between July when Boris Johnson took over as prime minister and then December when we got the general election it's it was difficult sometimes to know, is this it? Are we done now? I don't know if, you, if you're thinking back, you think about the illegal prorogation. I thought we were done then and then it, we weren't. And then there was the whole series of votes. And then there was the 18th of October Saturday vote. There was all sorts, 19th, I think it was. All sorts of things happened then, which didn't lead to the downfall of the government. And in fact, of course, it was the quite opposite, wasn't it? We had a general election and then they blimmin' won and by quite a lot, an increased margin. So I, don't, I wouldn't want to make a prediction about whether this is the downfall of the government. I think the... Peppa Pig, Peppa Pig Gate, if we could call it that. Uh, how hard is it to read that? I, I mean, again, I had to do that by throwing my hands up in the air, Stephen Pound style, the, the thing Stephen Pound said that I always do, which is, oh, for goodness sake. How could anybody have got themselves into that position and still be prime minister and still not be, does not appear to be embarrassed? It's extraordinary. But I think some of his colleagues are. And you mentioned rebellion. 
Now, I learned as a whip, and talking to government whips, I think they have this, they would confirm this. It, rebellion hurts the first time. People don't want to rebel against their own party. You get elected on a party ticket, you campaign for your party, you believe in your party's views and ideology. Broadly speaking, you stand on a party ticket because there's a collection of views which is bundled into that ticket, which you will always believe in. And you broadly agree with pretty much everyone in the party on the broad thrust of it. There will be details where you don't, but broadly speaking, you're able to stick with your party and you expect to as well, because my constituents elected me, not because of my shining personality and stunning wit and ability to quote talking heads, but because I stood on a Labour ticket. I'm not fooling myself. And and so, of course, you don't want to rebel against your own party, but what I have observed is that it hurts the worst the first time, but not the second, not the third. And I think there are MPs in the government side who, having rebelled once or made their views known, or in the case of some of them, failed to rebel on their own Patterson vote, but really wish they had. Their loyalty has been squandered, in my view. I'd be worried if I was a government whip. I know as, a, as an opposition whip that when you are asked to do difficult things for your party, I always consider being a whip a noble calling, but I wouldn't have wanted to be a government whip that week. That must have been hard. And I wouldn't want to be a government whip now. I do want to be in government. Don't get me wrong. I want I want the Labour government. And I wouldn't mind being a government whip if I was a Labour, if it was a Labour government. But to be a government whip at the moment must be a pretty tough gig because you're asking people to vote with you and they're going to go, why? Why should I? Look what you did to me. No wonder he's having a load of drinks parties. Is he, is he, is he, are they watching Peppa Pig, I wonder? I mean, it's, it's extraordinary week in politics, isn't it? Yet again. But how often have we been here? Is it the same as it ever was? Do you remember saying it's been another extraordinary week in politics numerous times? in 16, 17, 18, 19, and then again, last year. Was last year 2020? I'm almost lost track. How many times have we said it's another extraordinary week in politics? If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. want to thank them does it feel as though not just uh, you and other politicians but the journalists covering this still haven't quite got over the Theresa May era that we yeah. do cover every vote as though it could be really close and, and we feverishly report on what the, the rebels are saying but in, in practice a narrow victory is really all you can hope for does it still feel like one is still in the Theresa May mentality and that makes it difficult for for you because the reality is no matter how rebellious Tory MPs are feeling, the end result is still going to be quite boring. 
Oh, God, yes, that may be true of the lobby. It's possible that journalists are are feeling that way. I'm not. I can, as a whip, you learn to do the maths and you learn to work out, you learn to look at who's saying what on their timeline and roughly add up how big you think the rebellion's going to be. And I think there were predictions of there'll be 20 Tory MPs joining us in the lobby on Monday and there were 19. There were other abstentions, of course, but were we ever going to win? No. It's a very large majority, even though they're down slightly on where they were when they won in 19, for various very tragic reasons. We are still not in a position where we're going to easily beat them. But yes, I think there is that internalised feeling of, oh, this one could be close. No, that ship has sailed until we win a majority. And I really want us to do that as soon as possible. I want there to be a Labour majority as soon as possible. We're only ever likely to give them a difficult week. Now, having said that, of course, giving them a difficult week can still sometimes result in a U-turn. Look what happened over the Owen-Paterson affair. We didn't win the vote on the Wednesday, but by Thursday, he was gone. By Thursday, Jacob had done a 180 degree turn. So U-turns can happen. Change the policy can happen. On this one, I think they're going to find it tough because the Lords will be able to get things through that we couldn't on the numbers. And it's harder when you have, when it comes back to the Commons and the government has got to whip its MPs to vote to remove something they agree with rather than what they had on Monday and Tuesday, Monday last night and whenever, which is don't vote with the Labour Party. From knocking around Parliament this week, I've been surprised that the the general consensus is that Labour has been having quite a good few weeks, um, mainly because the government has been having a bad few weeks. So that's exactly what I want to ask you about, because actually a few people put it to me that that maybe the decent enough performance of Labour at the moment belies the fact that you're maybe still struggling to really pull ahead. I'm just wondering, this it's like such a big fight. If, if we step back a little bit, like there's such a big fight to recover from the 2019 general election. There are so many challenges there. How does it feel to you like it's going and, and what's been going well and what where do you still feel like you need to cut through more? Okay, so several thoughts occur to me there. Obviously, I've thought about this a lot. All of us in the Labour Party still bear the scars of the 2019 general election. In some cases, literal scars. It was a horrible election to fight. There were emotional scars. The, the literal scars I'm thinking of is my mum fell over in the rain, in the cold and the dark during campaigning, and I really hurt herself. And that always sticks in my mind. It's just that it was a cold, dark, wet, miserable election where most people hated us, even where they voted for us. I had a tough time, and I still had a big majority, and I had a tough time in my patch. So, you know, this was an awful election. Now, what should have been happening after that should have been in normal times, let's just for the moment pretend COVID never happened, if only wishing could make it so. Where would we be by now? Keir is a stunningly good leader, in my view. He is smart, he is capable, he used to be the guy that prosecutes bad guys. What more do you want if you need someone whose primary duty is to keep the security and safety of their citizens um, safe, to keep British people safe? You know, Keir actually knows how to do that. He's clever as anything. And also, he's got good team. I, I, I Obviously, I'm biased. I do think that in normal times... Would we have been cutting through even further? I mean, I I back us 100% to have been cutting through better. Now, what we had instead was something that, we'll all, we're, again, we're all going to live with the emotional scars and in some cases physical scars and long-term illness and, and loss and grief, the intense grief of the last two years. And what if you are a country that is collectively going through the sort of trauma, and I know the whole world was going through it, but at that time, you turned to your government. We were willing the government to succeed. You want the government to 
throw everything behind getting decent testing and uh, a cure and vaccines. You want them to do it properly. You don't want them to do it in a corrupt way. You want them to do it by the rules, but you want them to do it quickly. And then when they succeed, you don't go, oh, damn it, they succeeded. You go, oh, thank goodness. I, I can remember exactly where I was and how I felt when I heard the news that the vaccine was getting through clinical trials and was going to help us. And I'm sure I wasn't the only one that cried and just thought, there is hope. We are going to get through this. Now, I, is it surprising that an awful lot of people are therefore still cutting the government some slack, less than they were? Their vaccine balance is it's not, it's not disappeared, but it's not what it was. But should it surprise people? Again, as I said, in my patch where there's not masses of Tory voters, I still get voters saying, come on, they did get the vaccine. Come on, they did get us through this. They've got criticisms, actually, of what the government did. There are plenty of businesses in my patch who feel like they were given a really raw deal. There are school teachers. There are people in the health and social care system who are now feeling, actually, the government did this over. And that's starting to creep in. And I think that comes out as we have things like the health and social care bill, where health and social care workers and people who use health and social care are saying, do you know, what? after the year we've had, stand up for us, please. So that, I think, is turning. And I think that is where things are cutting through more, because as people come out of the immediate horror of the pandemic and the immediate terror, which there was, I think, for large numbers of people of how many of us are going to die? How many of us are going to lose loved ones? Is the NHS going to fall over? And it's a miracle it didn't. But now we know that it easily could because it's on its knees and the people in it were on their knees, some of them beforehand, and they've stepped up and they've kept going. Now we know, now the shortcomings in the social care sector that many of us knew about beforehand, but if they've been rawly exposed and cruelly exposed, I think it's harder for the government just to breeze through and say, we're going to level up, whatever the hell that means. What does levelling up mean to someone who lost a mother in, in a care home in COVID? Because it wasn't safe. There wasn't the care that was needed. Not because the care home workers didn't do their job, but because the government had failed to heed the warning signs before. I think people are starting to catch up with the fact that it's not any good, the government saying, oh, no one could have predicted the pandemic, except the pandemic preparedness report did. The pandemic preparedness report said you need to prepare for a pandemic. Those warnings were not properly heeded. Now, that doesn't mean everything would have been rosy and we'd have got through last year, 2020, without a, a snag or, or a, sadly a death. But the government didn't take seriously its number one duty, which is the safety and security of its citizens. And I'm sad to say, and it does make me sad because people died as a result, that now I think people are gradually coming to terms with both what the government helped with, but also where they were sadly falling short. So you think this is Labour's moment then? I think not only is the government going to get, you know, more and more people are going to realise what the government did badly, but as we come through with this is what we would do differently, as we start fleshing out some of our values and principles into more concrete policy areas, yes, I do. And I think already we're getting a different reception on the doorstep. Keir's getting a different reception on his road trips when he's going out and about and meeting people. There's a list of things that people are no longer saying to us that they were saying to us in 2019. And that that's a shift. We're not quite ready to win a general election. I can see it now. I can see it. It's there. It's there. I think that's a good note to end it on. Thank, thank you so much for joining us on the New Statesman podcast. You're very welcome. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, my colleague Anusha Kellyan, and our guest, Sangam Devonair. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. 
Thanks for listening. Please do leave us a review and subscribe. And you can also subscribe to us on YouTube at New Statesman. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.